welcome to More to Come, PW Comics World's uh, weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor at Publishers Weekly and Co-Editor of PW Comics World. Um, check us out on publishersweekly.com slash comics. All right, um, uh, greetings uh, out there in uh, More to Come land. Um, uh, today I have the great pleasure of getting a chance to talk a little bit with uh, Joe Illich, um, uh, an all-around comics industry guy. Um, uh, I think I first met you when you were working with Arkea. I might be wrong. Right. I think that's the first time I met that's you. That's right. a Absolutely few right. years back. Mm-hmm. Uh, but obviously, you've done everything in this business. You've worked for DC, uh, worked for Arkea. Um, you've got your own production house, uh, The Verge, in partnership with Sean Martin Bro, fabulous that's right. uh, comics artist. Uh, you've got more things to come, um, in particular, of course, uh, The Wren, uh, a graphic novel that you're working on with Sh- with Sean That's and right. Gray Williamson. That's yes? right, exactly. Uh, and, um, and you've also done a variety of things. You've uh, been outspoken about uh, diversity in the industry, and we're going to talk about a little bit and all of that, but um, welcome to More to Come. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to talking with you. Uh, well, one of the things that, and we talked about this a little bit before, and if you've heard more to come in the past, you know, I, I, I love for the people to really, for themselves, to give us a little sense. I gave that short intro, but maybe you can okay. tell us a little bit more about Joe Illich and okay. what's up with Joe. All right, interesting. <laughs> Your um, background. I went to the High School of Art and Design, and then I went to the School of Visual Arts. Cool. Native New Yorker. Yep. Uh, yep. Yeah, born and right. raised in Brooklyn, New York. Very cool. And um, born in 1969, you know, but trying to stay pretty, you know. <laughs> and um, my first exposure to the comic book industry was as an intern at Milestone Media. Yeah. And, you know, I started from the bottom. I did it the P. Diddy way because even back <laughs> then I knew that I wanted to eventually create an intellectual property-based company. So I started as an intern. I worked my way up in milestone ranks. I went from the business department to the editorial department. After that, I did a temp stint, actually, at DC Comics, working on their Green Lantern books, and made enough of an impression on them that they hired me back as a full-time editor on the Batman line of books. In you which were one of the first black editors the first for, black you know, editor like these the, the prime lines exactly yeah i mean batman is you know pretty sexy but a lot of pressure yeah yeah and i worked <laughs> under denny o'neill who is sure. of course one of the great sure. writers and editors of the comic book industry and then after that i actually got into book production i had spent so much time dealing with content that i really wanted to get into the art of manufacturing because no matter how strong the content of a book is, if the packaging is not packaging of quality, no one's going to buy it because mm-hmm. we're creatures of visuals. We are psychologically influenced with our eyes. And, and publications are, are meant to appeal. They're it's, meant to be... It's, it's major. They look good. It's major. <laughs> I mean, I have to tell you, I look at a company like DC Comics and I really have to give DC Comics and Arkea, I think, are some oh, of the best man, publishers out there. For their production value. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then afterwards, I actually went to work at Arkea as an editor. And I was able to help bring in The Many Adventures of Miranda Mercury. Oh, yeah. Which was a project about a black mm-hmm. female space mm-hmm. hero. Co-created by a black person. And that was great. And then after Arkea, I really started focusing more on my production company, Work Verge Entertainment, with 
Sean Martin Bro, who's the artist on Robert Kirkman's Thief of Thieves yeah. mm-hmm. for Images Sky Brown imprint. And our third partner, Milo Stone, comes from a background in video games and technology. So the three of us have set up a variety of projects which are starting to see light. And one of those is the Wren. The Wren was a brainchild of Sean and mine to tell this story of black history and black history that involved a lot of creative energy and creative people. And so Gray Williamson is someone we brought on board and it's really great for three New York born black men to tell this story about black history that was centered in New York City. Mm -hmm. And basically now I'm writing a series of columns called The Color Barrier, Mm -hmm. which examines diversity in comics and entertainment. Um, The Color Barrier is actually about to end and a new column is going to be born from it. And we're Mm -hmm. going to sharpen the focus and up the ante. And basically now I'm going to take the position of being more of a writer. So I'm going Mm -hmm. to start entering the fray and that way the Wren is kind of like the opening salvo of my writing career and my contribution to comics in that way. Cool, cool. Um, I have to jump back to Milestone Media. It set the scene for us. I mean, we're talking about, uh, and really, it was really the first black imprint i mean is that the, because it was this or was it was a kind of a there separate was, there company, was a company but, called yeah <clears throat> it's interesting but they had an affiliation uh or it's like a co-venture with with dc wasn't it right um milestone was the first um black owned mainstream comic book company and they had a co-publishing deal with dc comics so milestone created and owned the content mm-hmm. and dc was the publisher yeah. mm-hmm. and so but we're talking about uh, a group of people: Dwayne McDuffie, uh, Michael Davis, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Dennis, Derek, Cow- uh, Dennis Cowards, Derek, Derek D- Dingle. Derek Dingle. Uh, am I leaving somebody out? Uh, Actually, history would later reveal that Christopher Priest right, okay, was the right. fifth co-founder uh-huh. of Milestone, and he was no longer involved with Milestone when the book started coming mm-hmm. out in 1993. But mm-hmm. he was there at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So uh, this is this is a company that produced uh, Static Shock and Hardware and yeah Icon so, yes and all of it and it was interesting for me it was you know 1993 and I was between jobs as they say and a friend of mine Jason Scott Jones who went on to become the color editor of Milestone and then went on to become a producer at NBC um, he started there as an intern and he told me about it and. I mean, my mother's West Indian, Calvin, so working yeah. for free was kind of like, what are you talking about? So I was like, you can intern, bro. I'm not interning. I'm not doing that. My old man's Jamaican. Go on. Exactly, exactly. So you, you know where I'm coming from. And, um, but you know, the, the job prospects were dry at the time, and I was looking at these comic books coming out, and I think I remember seeing Icon number two in a newsstand on Utica Avenue in Brooklyn and I said history is being made here and I want to be a part of it I want to learn about this I want to be inside and so um, there was an issue of previews that had a big introductory interview um, about Milestone and there was a number in there that you could call if you wanted to become an intern so I called the number and the number claimed that I was going to get um, recruited by Michael Davis, but crazy enough, it turned out to be Matt Wayne, because Michael wasn't mm-hmm. available at the time, because Michael's always busy doing something. And so Matt Wayne 
was the editor who picked up and I ended up going in and I met Matt and I met Dwayne. And it was funny because first of all, I met Matt and Matt was white. And I was like, wait a minute, isn't this Milestone? Is Milestone black owned? There are white people here. I was like, okay, that's fine. That's so fine. White people yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like, it's all good. It's all good. And then Matt and Dwayne interviewed me in their office and Dwayne hardly said anything to me. He sat in the corner behind his desk and he was just looking at me. And I just stood there and I just basically said why they should hire me. And I use the term hire loosely because I wasn't getting paid. And um, so afterwards, I thought I had that interview locked. I was like, okay, I'm in, I'm in. And what I actually found out recently, um, Jason Scott Jones had told me that they asked him about me. They were like, you know, what do you, what do you know about this guy and this and that? And you know, Dwayne was like, he's kind of got a chip on his shoulder. I don't know if this guy's the right guy for our little family operation. And Jason was like, no, give him a shot. And, you know, they did. And so I interned there for three months. And in those days, you know, you're talking 1993, so the Metro card did not allow for a free tra- transfer. So if you went mm-hmm. from bus to drink, train, you were in a two-fare zone. Yeah. So I lived in a two-fare zone, but they only gave a stipend for one fare. So I was basically losing money every day that I was interning at Milestone. It was a trade-off. And after three months, I remember saying to them, hey, look, um, it's been great here. I really like what you're doing. I love the books, but I have to go out there and find a job. Yes, I got to get paid. (laughs) And I think it was after lunch, and Derek Dingle called me in his office, and he said that he spoke about it with the founders, and they would love to offer me a part-time job. And that was the beginning. And so I went under Derek's wing. And Derek taught me about the business hmm. of a comic book company, which doesn't sound sexy, but it, it is. And it's really mm-hmm. important. And he took me under his wing and he taught me a lot about the business. And then at a certain point, I decided I wanted to transition over editorial. Mm-hmm. And I remember the day that I spoke with Derek and Dwayne about it. And it was a Friday. And I felt kind of weird because I felt like I was letting down one mentor to mm-hmm. kind of work with another mentor. But they went with it. And then Dwayne took me under his wing and he taught me what an editor was. And I didn't know. I grew up on the John Byrne, you know, Mm -hmm. Chris Claremont Mm X-Men. So basically, I only cared who wrote the book, who drew the book, maybe who inked it, and maybe who colored it. Editor? What's that? I don't know what that is. And I don't care what that is. As a comic book fan from back in the day, I was pretty much the same. I don't care. Yeah. (laughs) um, But Dwayne taught me what an editor was. Mm -hmm. And editing involves working with everyone to get their best abilities possible, to tell the best story possible, and to do it on time. Being a good editor is not about ego. Mm -hmm. It's about helping people become the best creative talents that they can be. And so working at Milestone, we were making history every day, and I didn't even realize it at the time. I mean, I knew Milestone was unprecedented in terms of being this company with a universe of characters of color owned by four black men i knew all that but at that time i didn't realize the impact that milestone would have two decades later i mean last year was a company's 20th anniversary you know you don't know until the future and you have the hindsight and i've had people come up to me and say i started in comics because of milestone yeah and to know that you made that kind of impact on people's lives, that you made that kind of impact on the comic book industry, which is now global culture. We're yeah. no longer hiding 
behind our school books. We're no longer <laughs> hiding in the comic book stores. I was reading an interview where you said it's it's popular culture now. It's not fringe culture exactly. anymore. Exactly. And you're absolutely right. Exactly. I mean, you know, everyone knows that Tony Stark is Iron Man. <laughs> it's not a secret identity anymore. And so it's amazing to look back and know that even then that kind of impact was being made. So, you know, Milestone was a great place to work with great people who have gone on to do amazing work. And that is actually, it was in Milestone that I met Sean Martinborough. Mm -hmm. And that would be a friendship that would extend into now and really have um, further ramifications on my life and career. One more question about uh, Milestone Media. I mean, all of the the co-founders are extremely talented people. Those certainly, uh, Dwayne McDuffie had there is an, an aura about him, mm-hmm. uh, a, a almost a mythological element yeah. that, to this day. I never got, actually got to meet him. That's uh, though I all certainly read about him and uh, encountered his comments online very often too. Just a capsule response to uh, what was he like? What was it like to work with him? Um, you know, it's interesting for such for a man of his stature literally and figuratively, Dwayne was not intimidating. Um, He he wasn't intimidating, but I'm an only child. So Dwayne was kind of like the big genius brother I never had. (laughs) And Dwayne was a genius when it came to science. He was a brilliant mind. So when he would start talking about science, like real physics and not comic book physics or Knight Rider physics. Mm-hmm. It would just suck me in and he was really big into music. So I remember one time he was listening to some music and I remembered the same music from um, Ice Cube's second album, Death Certificate. And you know, me being green behind the ears, I go and walk into his office, I'm like, you listen to Ice Cube? He's like, it's not Ice Cube. That's Parliament. <laughs> that's the Ice Cube is sampling, son. That's Parliament. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. This is like... He knew his music, and if you look at the Milestone books, he brought in all these cultural mm-hmm. references. Yeah. You know, the titles of stories and things like that. So, um, now look, I'm not going to lie, and Dwayne wouldn't want me to lie. There were times when Dwayne pissed me off. But, <laughs> okay. people, would, but people with high standards do that. Yeah. Because they push you, okay? But what he also did was he had the generosity to allow me to actually begin my writing career at Milestone. I wrote a few Milestone comics, and look, that's a risk. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you sure. know? But he did mm-hmm. it because, and I remember he said this to me, and I never forgot it, a writer needs to see their mistakes on the page. You can't see it on the script. You can't see it on your screen. Sometimes you need to see it in print and say, oh... I understand. We'll, we'll do it differently the next time. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We will do it differently the next time. So what he was, was a generous man with a big heart. And if you look at the stories he wrote, um, I think that he had a very optimistic view on life. Mm-hmm. And he just wanted people to aspire to be the best that they could be. Mm-hmm. Is, this, is it too big a question to ask, why did Milestone fail? Um... Am I putting you too much on the spot? No, it's fine. It's fine. I don't think I'm totally qualified to answer that question. I will say two things. Number one, I will say Milestone did not fail in the sense that Milestone is still around. Mm -hmm. Even though they're not publishing monthly comics, Milestone is still around. And I imagine there will be developments in the future. 
why cool. Milestone in its first incarnation mm. ended. I can tell you that part of it was um, a particular editorial that Dwayne wrote that appeared in the 25th issue of Static. Mm. And it was about, um, in that issue, Static, um, Virgil Hawkins was to lose his virginity um, with his girlfriend, Daisy. And there was this really nice cover of um, Virgil in his Static costume and Daisy on the cover. And they're still fully clothed, right? Mm -hmm. They're on the couch and they're Mm -hmm. kissing and it's cool. And um, the powers that be at DC Comics said, we will not publish the comic if that's the cover. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly enough, at the same, during that same month, they had a Lobo cover, which aped a famous Janet Jackson album cover, where I think Lobo may have had his hands over a woman's breast and she was topless. Yeah. So this was a paradoxical dichotomy that, you know, yeah. Dwayne was not happy with, and he wrote a very pointed um, column in for Static 25 in editorial because, as you probably know, Dwayne was not one to shirk yeah. from controversial subjects. And that set off a series of events that was part of what led to the end of Milestone and his first incarnation. Um, above and beyond that, I don't know, but... The four founders, and not including Christopher Priest, the four founders went on their separate paths. Mm. They did great things. Yes. Mm. They maintained relationships. And Milestone's impact to this day, I think, is indicative of the fact that it was not a failure because you look at a lot of other independent companies that came out at that time, no one's talking about them. Yeah. And they did some good stuff. Yeah. Um, but people still talk about and remember Milestone. So, you know, I think all businesses go through cycles, but, you know, it's like they say in Hollywood, hey, never say never. Yeah, yeah. Never yeah. know what's around the corner. Well, all those guys, incredibly creative, um, uh, top professionals. So that we, that we haven't heard the last, obviously, as you've mentioned. Of, we of haven't heard the sure. last, and if you look, yeah. you've got Derek Dingle. He's the number three mm-hmm. person at Black Enterprise. I think he was actually the first person to interview President Obama Mm. after he won his first election. You look at Michael Davis, who's the creator of the Black Panel, Mm -hmm. which just got the big up from Orlando Jones on the Arsenio Hall show, and the Black Panel happens at San Diego Comic-Con every year. year. (laughs) Dennis Cowan is illustrating the icons of pop culture and illustrated the Django Unchained um, series, I believe, mm-hmm. that Reginald Hudlin wrote. So they're still continuing to um, blaze trails. Mm-hmm. All right, let's 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 leap forward a little bit to now. Uh-huh. You, you, uh, your column, The Color Barrier, I mean, uh, it, to get right to it, I mean, you wrestle with the issues of diversity in uh, in the comics, the conventional comics industry. Yes. I've been in the, the book industry, really, and, and part of my job here at PW has been to kind of bring the comic book industry a little bit into the book industry mm-hmm. and then pull the book industry a little bit into the comics That's industry. It. But even on in the book side here, I've written about diversity. Uh, I don't claim to have a fix on it. Everyone knows that uh, conventional book publishing um, has a non-diversity problem. I mean, right. uh, and yet there are black people throughout book publishing doing interesting things. Um, there are a whole bunch of left in the last few years, mm-hmm. but they moved into other areas of publishing. Mm-hmm. They became agents or 
Now, this also happens to white editors in the big in in this industry, and particularly over the last four or five years. You know, a lot of people have been getting laid off. That's true. That said, uh, this is always an issue. Uh, probably a little less than it has been when I first came into issue. Uh, I mean, how would you characterize the conventional comics industry? I mean, there are people in the book publishing industry who are doing great things, who've moved up high levels, can get things done. Not as many as there should be, right? right. Or so it seems. Mm-hmm. But uh, I remember in that article that I did, uh, you know, one of the comments to me was that, you know. Uh, this industry is kind of about people who want to be in it. Um, I'm not always sure that they don't want to be in it. Sometimes <laughs> people are discouraged from being in it. That said, uh, you know, if you really want something, you got to kind of stick your face in That's there. It. So That's it. how does the comics mainstream industry, can you characterize it in I, a similar or unsimilar way? If I was going to use one term to characterize the mainstream comic book industry now, it would be risk averse. Oh, well. <laughs> it's risk averse because the comic book industry has gotten what the fans have been begging for for decades, which is Hollywood recognition. Yeah. But once Warner Brothers really decides to stick their fingers knuckle deep into DC Comics, once Disney buys Marvel, the whole landscape changes, and you can't just say, oh, it would be cool if we brought back the Daughters of the Dragon, or it would be cool if we did a Firestorm comic, because there are decisions that have to be made. The higher-ups are looking at the intellectual um, property library and saying which ones will be great for spinoffs into films, Mm -hmm. TV shows, animated series because these are more than stories these are platforms that will be kind of recreated across whole lines of stuff absolutely they're going to have great impact Mm. so the decisions that are made at comic book companies are dictated by higher forces at parent companies and higher market concerns and so because of that there is a risk averse posture and so basically talent that has track records are being chosen to do more books because you can count on a certain amount of units being sold. Now, unfortunately, because, and especially in the writing sector, I find the art sector to be a little less guilty of this, but especially in the writing sector because less people of color were invited to the table before the parent companies came into play, less of them became popular enough to command a certain amount of sales Mm -hmm. so that hiring them would not be considered a high-risk proposition, Mm -hmm. right? So basically, the limited inclusion of today is directly connected to the limited inclusion of yesterday. That limited inclusion, I think, comes from familiarity. And what that is to say is, if the comic book industry of yesteryear was dominated by Caucasian males, Mm -hmm. quite likely of Jewish or Irish descent, Mm -hmm. then it's fair to reason that their Rolodexes will be full of similar individuals. Yeah. Right? So their Rolodexes may not be full of Latinos. 
or blacks mm-hmm. or even women or women for yeah. that matter mm-hmm. so as an editor as a manager a problem comes up a hole comes up in a publication you want it filled easiest way go to someone you know hey buddy write me a fill-in story sure. you know and in some cases it was editors it was staffers mm-hmm. so I do not believe that we're talking about an X-Files scenario where you have a bunch of suited guys in a room saying, no, that person's mm. black, we won't hire them. Yeah. No, that person's Latino. Mm, that person's black, but they're light-skinned. That's not what's happening. What's happening is that the circumstances of yesteryear are affecting today because now, in part, it's about money. Mm. So to go to your point about you know, if you want to be in it, you have to stick your face in it. What people of color have to do, what women have to do, what what um people of different sexual orientations have to do, mm. is they have to say, "We're going to get our stories out there anyway." Yeah. No matter what, we're going to self-publish. We're going to put it out digitally. We're going to align ourselves with marketing people and mm-hmm. business people, and we are going to produce work of such regularity and such quality that we cannot be denied. And when we get the call from a Marvel editor or a DC editor or whomever, then the discussion begins. Because the 21st century is no longer allowing for a hat-in-hand posture. Mm -hmm. You can't go and ask for anything. You have to generate enough attention on your own that they come to you because they're like, oh, that person can sell 10,000 units at Image. I bet if I put them with Deadpool, they can sell 30,000 units for us. Exactly. And that's how the discussion changes. Yeah. And it's happening. It's happening in ways now, or, or what I should say, we've reached a point in the publishing landscape, and I'm using publishing in the broadest possible way: mm-hmm. books, music, uh, comics. Uh, the mechanisms for artists, the options for artists, have never been better. And by this, I mean self-publishing. Yep. The self-publishing platform. I know there's, you know, there's some controversy, certainly in, on, usually in the more uh, conventional side of the business, that somehow or other this shows a lack of quality or, or whatever. But I think we both know that this is changing the world. Absolutely. Uh, uh, artists have the ability now to basically uh, go direct to the, to, the, to the audience. That's right. And, let the, and truly let the market decide whether you've got a talent, the talent that they want. And more and more people are saying, yes, we, we, we want independent artists. And our stories here at Publishers Weekly, as we look at the comics market uh, and, 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 and talk to retailers, uh, over the last two to three years, I've never heard more retailers talking about the rise of the independent comics, of, of, of comics from IDW and from Boom, from, uh, from Image, um, being a, a, a destination brand which is something very different in this part of the business, don't you think? Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, you know, we're going to talk about um, the Ren later, but our publisher, First Second Books. Yeah. Um, First Second Books, I think they're now on their sixth year. And, you know, objectively speaking, I honestly feel like First Second Books is one of the most important publishers in the global graphic novel scene today because... Not only are they allowing for creator-owned projects, but they're allowing for projects with cultural resonance. Mm-hmm. Um, the first book 
that they did that really made an impact on me was American Born Chinese oh, well, by Jean Luen Yang. Yeah, what a great book. And yes. I read that book and it changed my, you know, mm-hmm. it changes you. Yeah. You know, it's one of those blinders pulled from your eyes moments. And my fiance, early in our relationship, I, let, I, I bought her a copy of that book. She loved it. We gave it to a friend as a gift. Um, and so they were the perfect house for a graphic novel in the Harlem Renaissance done by black creators. So when you have a house like that, when you have a house like Image, the beneficiary of the sales from The Walking Dead and thus using that to be able to buttress the efforts of other mm-hmm. creators, also creators of color, Jimmy Robinson is there mm-hmm. doing Bomb Queen, you know, Sean yeah. Martin Bro on Robert Kirkman's Thief of Thieves, Kari Randolph now on Robert mm-hmm. Kirkman's Tech Jacket. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, obviously the women, Kelly Sue Connick with Pretty Deadly. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, as you said, you have this advent that is happening here where in terms of quality, book for book, the independent sector is challenging the mainstream. They're challenging the two big houses toe-to-toe, and that's the way it should be. Competition is healthy, it's necessary, and all of the talented people have to come to the front lines and pick their side. And when you look at a company like Image, which in the last two years has seduced so many creators from the two big houses, you're talking about a major sea change. Mm-hmm. That's not a coincidence. That's the other Something side. Something is happening. Uh, fide best-selling artists, um, acclaimed, you know, so-called mainstream artists from Brian K. Vaughn um, to Ed Brubaker, yep. they're taking their talents to the independent side. That's right. Uh, for a variety of reasons, but certainly uh, creative control, uh, being able to, to see their vision. Um, I mean, I mean, a lot of these guys can get that at the big two or right. the bigger houses as well. Right. But there are other breakdowns also that they can get that perhaps they can't get. Um, Absolutely right. At the big houses. Obviously, a much better profit sharing. Mm-hmm. I would say better control of the marketing campaign mm-hmm. for their books. But one thing that's really crucial to speak about about these people, about Brian K. Vaughn and Ed Brubaker and Kelly Sue DeConnick, is these people are professionals. Yeah. And above and beyond talent, you have to be a professional. You have to know what you can do and what you can't do. Some people try to do everything. If you're not good at self-promoting, marketing mm-hmm. yourself, if you're not savvy with social media, then you find someone yeah. who is. And you invite that person to become part of your machine. You have to find the allies that have the assets that you require. But Saga would not be successful if Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples could not put out that book month yeah, on a regular after basis. Yeah, month. So absolutely. they have a level of professionalism. And people of color have to match that. Match that level of professionalism at the very least, match that level of quality at the very least, match that level of self-promotion and marketing and presentation mm-hmm. at the very least. Because you can't fight Iron Man with a pea shooter. Yeah, yeah. You can't fight Batman with a water gun. Yeah. Um, I want to jump really quick to the color barrier. 
tell us a little about about how that column started and maybe mention a couple of the people that you talk with because what was great about it is that you know you talk to artists uh, uh you talk with the the woman from black girl nerd mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. Yeah, Jamie which, yeah, yes which I, I i so was which to me was kind of outlining uh an audience for comics that perhaps we don't think about enough in fact i know we don't think about right. it enough. Um, uh, there were, um, uh, Filomena's. There were, yes, Filomena's talking about, uh, gay artists. Um, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, how did the column come about? And, um, yeah, just tell us a little bit more. Well, well, the color barrier came about because, um, the executive producer of comic book resources, Jonah Weiland, mm-hmm. who's a great guy, reached out mm-hmm. to me. He I think said, they won an Eisner last year, if I'm not mistaken. Well, was it the year before? I might be confused. Might, might they did for for uh, for comics news oh, you know, wow. journalism, but well, no, but it might have been the year before. I, I but... can objectively say well deserved. <laughs> yes, there you um, go. <laughs> and I'll tell you why in a minute. And um, so he reached out to me. He said I'd like to do something for Black History Month, and mm-hmm. I'd like to do a special column really focusing on creators of color. And I would like you to head this up with my supervision. I thought it was a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately the reason I did it is this when um, Milestone alumni and one of the first writers of Static Robert Washington III passed away a few years ago you know it was really one of the tragic illuminating stories of the comic book industry Mm -hmm. about what happens to these people that you don't see that fall off your radar and um, people are so busy arguing about Wonder Woman's costume um, that they forget about the people who make these things. Mm-hmm. And they forget about them as people, yeah. not as icons or objects or people that you're going to either hate for no yeah. good reason or love for no good yeah. reason. Yeah. Um, yes, unfortunate part of the, this business that we love. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> when um, Robert died, when Bob died, um, Comic Book Resources, I believe, was, if not the first website to cover it, the website to provide the most extensive coverage of him. And that was when I knew that they were not just a a website that was interesting in kissing the butts of the powerful and the famous people in comic books, that they cared about human stories. Mm -hmm. And that was it for me. Mm -hmm. That, to me, said there was a level of integrity that I was interested in being a part of. And so the color barrier started off and Jonah you know, was wise enough to say, you know what, this is more than a month. Let, let's go a little further with it. Mm-hmm. So it went into March and it ended in April and it really gave me a chance to interview um, a wide spectrum of people. Um, I'm going to give credit to my fiance, Lulu Frysdat. Lulu was the one that put me on the Jamie Brunn act. Uh-huh, cool. And I'd heard of Black Girl Nerds, mm-hmm. yeah, I've heard of, yeah. she right. specifically put me on the Jamie Brunn act because Jamie had become uh, a member of the Griot.com's 100 list mm-hmm. as, uh, you know, an influencer. So I reached out to Jamie. I said, I would love to interview you. And we talked and... I immediately found out she was big in the X-Men. I yeah, grew up yeah. on X-Men. So we immediately started the X-Talking, you know? There you go. And um, she was really great. She's just a, a, a great um, person. She's very um, positive. She's very determined. She will not be stopped. She basically positioned herself as a black girl nerd when that was something 
not to necessarily be, I'm not going to say not to be proud of, but that was not looked at favorably Mm -hmm. by American society. So she Mm -hmm. stepped out and became the forerunner. Mm -hmm. By white or black. Exactly. exactly. And you talk about, you know, estranged from all sides. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So talking with her was great. And we're continuing um, the talk. She's a big fan of Milestone. Yeah. And um, interviewing Phil Jimenez was something that I really wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Phil and writer Devin Grayson and I, we spoke at a panel at Purdue University Um, about diversity and sexual orientation in comics. And Phil, I've known him since I worked um, Mm -hmm. as an editor on Batman in the DC days. He is so intelligent Mm. and so charismatic and charming. You have these conversations with me, and it's like, bro, other people (laughs) need to hear this. So when I got the opportunity to interview him, it was just great getting his responses to the questions, um, hearing him speak not only as a Latino, Mm -hmm. but as a homosexual in comic books, Mm -hmm. his pride, the contributions that he's continuing to make to the next generation. So he and I are aligned in that way. Mm -hmm. That it's not just about, well, keep moving forward and don't look in the rearview mirror or don't look behind you. Because the same way that the founders of Milestone gave me opportunities and gave me education, I know that it is part of my purpose to do the same thing and pay it forward. People like Phil Jimenez do that. Um, You know, people like Jeffrey Thorne, who was the first Mm -hmm. person I interviewed, do that. Um, Someone like Afua Richardson. Who I actually, I met at the first C2E2. Who's this? Uh, Afua. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I met her, uh, and a bunch of the Chicago mm-hmm. black cartoonists. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I didn't know her well, and I just met her very briefly, but mm-hmm. it was really great to see. I knew she was talented. I wouldn't. I didn't know how talented. Exactly. Until how I read, talented until I she read is, your right? interview. Yeah. Um, um, but, but this is what's great about this series of interviews. I mean, you really get up close and personal uh, to a whole range of independent talents. Yeah, thank you. And what I didn't want to do, I don't like the complaining. I'm tired of reading the columns that basically say, you know, why aren't there more black writers here? Why aren't there more black artists here? When are you going to give us ours? I'm tired of the complaining because the complaining, it it diminishes you and it takes away your power. And it gives them, whoever, Absolutely. them is the yeah. power. Yeah. If you want the power, then you have to come from a position of strength and you have to produce no matter what. So the color barrier was a focus for all these discussions that happened throughout the comic book industry mm-hmm. and in people's homes, and it kind of came into a focus there. And the color barrier is about to end, and it's going to evolve into the next column. Um, I won't tell you the name of it now, but I will okay. tell you it's going to drop soon, and it's going to outline what I consider the mantra for moving forward, what I consider the mantra for the empowerment narrative. It's a 21st century. We need an empowerment narrative and we need to act on that. Um, well, on that note, let's segue into, I want to hear you talk a little bit more about the Wren, okay. if you can. I know you've, you've 
done a little bit more, but uh, this is your 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 situation as a creative artist, right? Uh, not as a manager. I mean, you've got many skills, obviously, as an editor, right? But this is in the the uh, putting together, and also in a non superhero, absolutely, you know, uh, uh, genre. This is a uh, you know a naturalistic, um, historically based. Novel. That's so, um, and I've seen a few uh, character studies. Mm-hmm. So the artwork looks fabulous and and elegant Thank you. Uh, and dynamic yep. as well. Yep. I mean, we, we we haven't lost that from the superhero side of it. I saw some Lindy hopping drawings. <laughs> that's that look, right. That's that right. Like you know, you know, black people could fly even then. They really can. They can <laughs> so, defy but, gravity. But, but I definitely wanted uh, to. Uh, and who's your editor at first second? My editor is Callista Brill. Sure. Yeah. And Callista is great. She is detail-oriented. She understands the essence of story, and she can really identify what is necessary and what is extraneous, and her heart is in the right place. And, you know, it's interesting, as an editor, there's kind of a relief to be edited (laughs) by somebody else, but there's also, you know, admittedly, there's that kind of thing where it's like, okay, well... Like, I'm an editor, so if you're going to be my editor, like, you better be a badass editor. <laughs> it's getting and meta. Cal- you get a meta here. <laughs> Callista's a badass editor. Yeah, right. Like, Callista's got a fedora with a feather in it, and she's got, like, her pimp stick and all that oh, yeah, stuff. Yeah. Like, no, she got style. Cal- Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Callista <laughs> is on her game, and it's been a joy working with her as a mm-hmm. writer, and she's definitely helped make the project stronger, and, you know... We talked about the Ren not being about superheroes, but it's interesting. When you look at the writers and the artists and the musicians and the performers of 1920s Harlem, they were superheroes. They were amazingly Mm -hmm. talented people that came together and they turned a negative to a positive. They turned the negative of discrimination. They turned the negative of being dismissed as lesser than even though a lot of black men fought in World War One mm-hmm. and came back to still be diminished. They took that and they turned it around and it became part of the new Negro movement. Mm-hmm. That was an empowerment narrative. We're talented. We're going to come together. We're going to get our talent out there and we're going to shape this city we're going to support each other's businesses and creative endeavors. And the amount of creativity and influential art that came out of that time, I don't know if you could find another point in the last 150 years that did so much. I don't even know if the 60s would mm-hmm. match up. Mm-hmm. It would be questionable. It's the reason why it's called the Renaissance. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly right. And so... In learning more and more about the Renaissance to write this story, I really had to explore the social conditions, how it went back to the great migration of the early 20th century Mm -hmm. and black people leaving the South because of Jim Crow and various other factors to come to the North and planting their flags, so to say, Mm -hmm. um, on the East Coast. So in starting the story... Sean Martinbro and I said, well, we'd like to do a romance between um, two black teenagers. And Sean is writing as yeah. this as well. Sean so is not, actually, he's, yeah. He, yeah, he's, mm-hmm. he's taken off the hat of mm-hmm. artist and he's put on the hat of um, co-plotter. So the, mm-hmm. both, the both of us came up with the story and I am writing the actual script. 
And so we wanted to do this young black romance, which quite frankly, we don't see in comics. I don't see it in comics. Yeah. And so it's needed on that level. And we were like, okay, what's the best time to tell that story? It's not now. It's 1925. Yeah. That's the best time to tell that story. So we developed the story of the Wren and we engaged in the world building and I said, okay, I'm going to start, I'm going to start at Barnes and Noble. And I remember the first time going home with a ton of books Mm -hmm. and reading up on all the different things and the social forces and the people involved and really putting together a dramatic packed script because basically this is going to be 200 plus pages. It's really Mm -hmm. going to be a graphic novel in the truest sense of the word. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't like the way the term graphic novel is thrown around at everything. Hey, mm-hmm. let's 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 take six Wolverine comics and smash them together. <laughs> and that's a graphic novel, is it really? I don't know about that. Um, a graphic novel is a novel with its character peaks and valleys and dramatic arc in the sequential art form. So that is what we wanted to accomplish with this mm-hmm. book. We've certainly done so with the story. Um, there are various real people that are going to factor into the story. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois is going to be in the story, whereas the influence of someone, the impact on society of a Marcus Garvey mm-hmm. would be present in the background. So the story takes place from 1925 to 1926. So there are certain people that could not physically be in the story. Certain people you're going to see in their younger versions before mm-hmm. they become... Um, famous as we know them in mm-hmm. history. So that's really been a pleasure to do. So the script is done, and now the next stage is the artwork. Um, Gray Williamson, you know, you, like you said, you've seen his character designs, you've seen the elegance of his mm-hmm. art, the naturalistic nature of it. So, you know, the pages will start rolling out, and we're hoping for a 2015 release. Might be 2016. We hope everyone understands. But this is a real mammoth project. And when it comes out, what's going to be clear is that people are going to see the love and the care Mm -hmm. that we put into it. And what I wanted to do is kick off discussions. I wanted to kick off discussions about the Harlem Renaissance. I wanted to kick off people's interests and get them to do some more research on it. I would like it to be part of... um, educational curriculums i would like it to be the Mm -hmm. beginning of a discussion and you know when you look at something like a boardwalk empire Mm -hmm. which in its last season it started to engage the harlem renaissance with various characters and 1924 and speaking about the influence of garvey on society even as it Mm -hmm. relates to j edgar hoover's um rise in the government we know that there's an audience out there for wren that the wren is a story that can go beyond graphic novels, can go to cinematic form, can even go to prose form. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that it has that kind of mainstream appeal. We know that it's a story that people will want to see. So writing it has been a joy. And again, I consider it like the opening salvo to some degree to what I want to be my body of work. Um, we were talking about Dwayne McDuffie earlier and even talking about Brian K. Vaughan. You can look at the work of these gentlemen and you can get a sense of what they cared about. What were the themes that were important to them? So 
the run will be the beginning of what I will consider my statement as a writer as what is important to me about people, about society, what's our relationship, and that everyone has a superpower. Everyone has a creative ability. The unfortunate thing is most people may not have tapped into it yet. But if you tap into it and you get to express it, it's a beautiful thing. I hear you. Uh, and uh, we can't wait to get a chance to tap into the Ren particularly. Uh, I think we're, at this point, this is a good place to end. Um, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to okay. talk with you. Okay. And um, we'll, we will talk some more. Okay. Uh, that sounds good. Me. There's one thing I want to tell you. Oh, give please, you a little yeah, bit of yeah, surprise. Yeah, please. Tell me, me more. There's more. Yeah. Yep. There's one Absolutely. little surprise I'm going to tell you. Kind of consider it a semi-exclusive. Awesome. That's what we um, like. My company with Sean Martin Bro and Milo Stone Verge Entertainment, we're developing a variety of projects for graphic novels and television. And we have the fortune of being allied with the New York Times bestselling author Zane, who has written dozens of novels. Oh, yeah. And... She's had television shows on sure. Time, HBO. Her she's a publisher herself. Exactly, the publisher of <laughs> yes. Streetboard Books. Yes, which is an imprint of Atria Simon yes. Schuster. For those who don't know, she was among the authors. Well, we, we hear much about self-publishing now and how it's transforming everything. Black authors in the mid 1990s were way out in front in self-publishing, and Zane was one of them. That's yeah, it. Yes. Zane so, really led the way in erotic fiction yes. in um, dramatic fiction with um, people of color and so we are working with her on a number of projects and it's really interesting to see how our interests dovetail and basically Sean and I bringing our creative abilities when it comes to world building and high concept and really Zane bringing her romance angle, her publishing experience. So we're working on two projects now, which are going to be um, multimedia projects. It's really exciting to be working with Zane. And as things roll out, we will be talking more specifically about those projects in the future. But I figured... Awesome. Uh, well, I, I, you know, look, I'm a reporter, so I love a scoop. All right, all right, <laughs> all right. Well, there, so, there you that's go. That's the scoop. Um, we're going to end right there, but okay. um, when, once this thing goes off the air, I'm going to be talking to him a lot more. You, you, we, we may see some more of this in print. Okay. So anyway, look, thanks to, so much to Joel for being on More to Come. Hey, thank you for having me here. I enjoyed it.